Good morning, Redeemer Church. Thirty years ago, I was in the sixth grade at Phyllis Wheatley Middle School. Some of you kids can't believe that Pastor Ryan was ever in the sixth grade. But I was in the sixth grade at Phyllis Wheatley Middle School, and some of my new classmates invited me to go roller skating on a Wednesday night with their youth group. And so I agreed to go. My parents let me go. And so we piled onto the church bus and pulled out of the parking lot. And we no further got out of the parking lot than my new friends cornered me in the back of the bus. And they asked me point blank, are you saved? I said, what? They said, have you been saved? Their questions caught me completely off guard. I said, saved from what? Saved from who? I didn't know I was in trouble. I thought we were just going roller skating. They kept pressuring me. I remember we were riding right past Hardee's when two of the students were like, you've got to be saved. And they couldn't quite articulate what it meant to be saved. As I asked those questions, they just said that I needed to be so. Well, after literally after like two or three minutes, the conversation moved on to like what was the best flavor of Jolly Ranchers or, you know, (laughs) the next episode of Knight Rider or something like that. But for three minutes, for three minutes, it was a very, um, I won't say terrifying, it was a very alarming conversation because I was not, privy to what they were talking about. I will tell you that the Lord used that brief conversation when I was in the sixth grade in the back of a church bus to take me on a journey for a number of years that helped me to understand and embrace what it means to be saved. Salvation in its most basic sense is deliverance. It is deliverance from the power of sin, the pollution of sin, and the penalty of sin. And it is bringing you to the power of the resurrection of Christ and the purity of the righteousness of Christ and the presence of Jesus Christ forevermore. Now, if we extrapolated a little bit an understanding that we are underneath the power of sin, that that sin owns us, that sin rules us, that we can't do anything but sin prior to salvation, that we understand that we have the pollution of sin, that we are defiled, that we do terrible things, we think terrible things, we say terrible things, and even the good things that we do, the good things that we say, the good things that we act are laced with terrible motives. We're polluted. And we have this penalty of sin. We are condemned. We, We are damned. The sentence has already been given and we are hell bound. And in salvation, 
We are rescued from that power. We are rescued from that pollution. We are rescued from that penalty. And we are brought over to the fullness and the beauty and the glory of Christ. It is a deliverance. And when I was in the sixth grade, I I did not understand that I needed deliverance. I needed rescue. Church, I want you to know that salvation is like a, a diamond. It is like the most beautiful, magnificent, glorious diamond that you could ever behold. Because when you look at it, You can look at it from one angle and see one side or one facet and you're like, wow, look at the magnificence of that beauty. But then you turn it and you see it from another angle and you see another cut and another facet of it and you're like, that is even more amazing than the previous side. And the more you look at it, the more you are mesmerized by it. Salvation is not this small thing and this flat thing that can only be seen at one angle and you can only see one thing that is great about it. Salvation includes so many facets, just like a diamond includes so many facets to it. Salvation includes your election. You realize before the foundation of the world, before you ever existed... God chose you. He chose you to be a trophy of His grace. Before you breathed the first breath of air, before you were formed in your mother's womb, God chose you from before the foundation of the world to belong to Him. That's salvation. Salvation includes regeneration. That you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You had no spiritual heartbeat. You had no viable life. The life you lived was a living death. And God the Holy Spirit instantaneously created within you a spiritual nature. That's salvation. He gave you a new heart and a new pulse. Your salvation, looking at that beautiful diamond, includes your redemption. You were in spiritual bondage. You were shackled in the slave house of sin and God came to that slave house and He unshackled you. He released you and He brought you out of that slave house and put you in His own house that includes liberation and freedom and joy. Your salvation includes your justification. I mean, you, you were legally guilty of treason against God. He made you for His glory. He fashioned you in His image. He sustains you day by day, and yet you rejected Him all day, every day. You deserve the sentence of death. But when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, God, the righteous judge, declared you righteous, righteous, righteous. Your salvation includes your adoption. In the depravity of your sinfulness, you had no spiritual family. I mean, the only group that you belonged to was a gang of like-minded, like-hearted rebels. But God the Father came to you and legally adopted you and placed you into His family and bestowed on you fatherly protection, fatherly guidance, fatherly care, and fatherly love. Adoption is the sweetness of your salvation. 
Your salvation includes your sanctification. God didn't just save you and put you up in a trophy case somewhere so that he could come every few months and open up that case and pull you out and dust you off and so that he can show you off. No, God came to you and he saved you in order to do a massive work of grace in your life, in the way you live. You see, sanctification is God's work of saving grace in your life that sets you apart for joyful worship of Christ and selfless love of others. Sanctification is God's ongoing work of your salvation. And it's part of that diamond. And salvation includes your glorification. One day you will be ushered out of this world and out of this life and into another world and into another life. And when that happens, you will be brought into the presence of King Jesus. And you will behold for the first time the Lamb of God who has taken away your sins. You will be awestruck. You will be mesmerized. You will be more alive than you've ever been. Sin will be fully and finally defeated in your life and you will share in the holiness of Christ. You will share and you will live forever in wonder and amazement and unending glory. And this will be the culmination of your salvation. And so when we consider salvation... It is a multifaceted diamond. It is beauty. It is glory. It is magnificence. It is awesomeness. It is something that that is beyond our comprehension. But what I want you to know is when you look at that diamond, if you had x-ray vision, you look at the very core of that diamond, what you will see is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Paul would say that. Because Paul said in Philippians 2 that he, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped or something to be held on to, but emptied himself. And coming in the form of man, he became a servant, a servant, and was seen in the form of man and emptied himself. He had the most humble mindset and he lived the most humble life and he died the most humble death and that is what our salvation is based on. And so, and so, Paul says, because he is the center of that diamond, that beautiful and glorious salvation, this is what I want you to do. So church, if you will look down at Philippians 2, And verse 12, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Paul says, work out the salvation that God is working in. Work out the redemption, the election, 
the sanctification, the adoption, the rescue. Work it out because God is working in. Now, Paul has three basic words for the Philippians. And ultimately, the Holy Spirit will have three basic words for us at Redeemer Church. And these are the three basic words that he has. I affirm you, I exhort you, and I embolden you. I affirm you, I exhort you, and I embolden you. Let's look first at his word, I affirm you. He says, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. Paul would say, I affirm you with my infection. I affirm you with my affection. He calls him my beloved. My beloved. In other words, I love you. I have a tender affection for you. My heart is towards you. Man, my affections are with you. When I think of you, my heart swells. When I think about what I want to, to, to do in my life and how I want to spend my days, I want to do so caring for you and ministering to you because you are close to my heart. I read an article on the University of Texas's new football coach this week. His name is Tom Herman. Tom Herman is, I think he's 41 years old, and... He is known as the kissing coach. I had to read that article. <laughs> and what I found out was that Tom Herman has been caught on many occasions hugging each of his players and kissing them on the cheek before they go out on the field of play on Saturday afternoon. And the writer of the article asked him, why do you do that? And Tom said, first of all, I had a dad that was absentee. He was an alcoholic and he struggled and he ultimately, uh, it, was, it was not a good situation. But number two, when I recruit these high school players to come and sign with my team and to play for me, I tell their parents that I will treat them as my own children. And he said, you know what I do with my own children? I hug them and I kiss them every day. Wow. That's affection. Yeah. It's love. It says, I hold you in my heart. I care for you. You're my beloved. When Paul writes to the Philippians, he's not just writing to a group of people who he theologically agrees with. He's not just writing to a group of people who are trying to live by a similar standard that he is trying to live to. He is writing to his family. He is writing to his children. He is writing to people that he cares for. And if he could, he would give them a hug on the neck and he would give them a kiss on the cheek because he loves them that much. And so he says, I affirm you with my affection and I affirm you with my recognition. Look down at the text. He says, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. As you have always obeyed. As you've always obeyed. Now Paul's not saying, man, you guys are perfect. You have unequivocally, consistently, without fail, obeyed 
every rule and law of God. No, that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, you know, via a vision that the Lord gave to me, I crossed over the sea and I came to Macedonia and I walked into your city. And from the time that I walked into your city, I was met with opposition. Opposition from government rulers, opposition from Roman authorities and military figures. But when I declared the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, you heard it and you believed it. You say, I, 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 I believe that message. I, I'm, I've been searching for salvation and searching for deliverance in a variety of different forms. And I'm hearing this message about this resurrected Savior. And I believe it. I want to give my life to it. And if you can remember when our first message, you had the Philippian jailer. And, and you had Lydia and all of her co-workers and you had other people, this slave girl, and they heard this message and they believed it and they obeyed it. It's what Paul would call in other places the obedience of faith. They obeyed the Lord by putting their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. And from that point forward, they have lived the rest of their lives up to this point on the basis of faith in Christ. And he says, I recognize that in you. I recognize that you have put your faith in Jesus and you have not wavered. I recognize you have put your faith in Jesus and you have not gone back to your old life. I recognize that you have put your faith in Jesus and even when you sin, you have repented of your sin and pressed into the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have not wavered. You have not stumbled. You have not turned back. And I recognize that in you. And he says, so I, I affirm you for that. I affirm you. I recognize it. Now what he's going to go on to say is, just as you have always obeyed from the very point of your salvation and your baptism and your immersion into the church, I want you to surpass your past obedience with further obedience. That's what he's going to say. The church... I think we would do well to stop for a moment and say we probably don't have enough affirming going on in the church of Jesus Christ. What, what, is it, what does it mean to affirm? It means to declare the truth of something. To declare the reality of something. And the fact is, is that we need to affirm one another more than we do. You know, the fact that we're all gathered here in a building this morning after years, many of us, of trusting in Christ and saying, I believe the gospel, the fact that we're still here, that we're still showing up on Sunday mornings, that we're still singing songs and praying prayers and, and listening to sermons and reading the Bible and fellowshipping with one another and making meals and caring for one another, we need to affirm that that's the grace of God in us. Yeah. Yeah. How, how many people today are sitting at home or raking their yards or on a boat somewhere who used to be in church? It's the grace of God in us. Let's see it. Let's declare it. Let's affirm it. Let's feel the warmth and the affection of the Lord Himself as we 
care for one another in that way. Paul affirmed the believers in Philippi because he knew that that affirmation would spur them on to further grace and further works and the working out of their salvation. We should do the same. The second word that he has for them is, I exhort you. I exhort you. Like This is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to do it. And he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, yes, you've been adopted. Yes, you've been justified. Yes, you've been redeemed. Yes, you've been rescued. Yes, you have been unshackled and unchained from that slave house and you've been liberated into joy, into grace, into freedom, into liberation with God Himself. What does that mean for you? It means to live out the realities of all of that that you have experienced. Live it out. Work it out. Demonstrate it. That's what he's saying. I exhort you to live out the realities of your redemption. Be what you already are. Context is, as many of us know, is is very key to understanding the Bible and specific passages. And in chapter 1, verse 27... Paul gives one command. He says, only let your life be worthy of the, what? The gospel of Christ. Only let your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I remember standing up here and telling you that the gospel is up here. It is a beautiful, glorious, wonderful, amazing message of what Jesus Christ has done for you in His life, death, and resurrection. And what Paul is saying is, let the quality of your life measure up to the quality of that gospel. That's the guiding, the governing command of this entire section. Only let your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then he goes on and clearly articulates the magnificent love of Christ by saying he had the most humble mindset. He lived the most humble life. He died the most humiliating death. He is now in the most exalted position. He has the most unrivaled name and he exists for the glory of his own father. That's what he's just said. So now when he says work out your own salvation? He's saying, live out those realities. Live them out. Don't don't tuck them away so that you can dust them off sometime when you go to a Bible class and you can show people how much you know about theology. Don't, don't Don't just use them when you think it's going to be helpful when you're having a spiritual conversation with people. What Paul is saying is, you need to take on this mentality. I've been redeemed out of the slave house of sin and into the freedom of a a family with the Father. Therefore, I am not going to walk back into that slave house and voluntarily shackle my, my wrist and my feet to sin again. That's what he's saying. He's saying, okay, you've experienced redemption, so don't walk back into the slave house. You've experienced rescue. Like you were down in the pit 
You were in despair. You were in discouragement. You were hopeless. You were struggling. And so what he's saying is, don't go back into a hopeless mindset. Don't go back into a struggling disposition, but rather take hold of and take claim on the promises that you have of your glorification. Stop living in the unreality of your former self and start living in the present reality of who you are and what God has called you ultimately to. You see, that is a problem that we have in Christianity is we think of our lives in terms of what we used to be and what we formerly loved and what we formerly delighted in. And he's calling us to so much better than that. He's saying, no, become who you already are. Be what God has already designed you to be. Live in the realities of your redemption. Work out the realities of your salvation. So, been coaching a basketball team, and we just finished up our last game on Friday night and had a number of you who came to support uh, that team on Friday night, which was an incredible encouragement to me and to Carson, for sure. But you know, for three weeks, we were practicing. For three weeks, we were working out, and we were, we were working on our fundamentals of our dribbling drills and our, and our shooting um, positioning. And we were working on, like even our free throws, you know, we use that term beef, balance, eyes, elbows, follow through. And we're, we're working out, we're practicing, we're working on our half court trap, we're working on our press break. And then we get to go play in the game on Friday night and we played in this game, eight minute quarters, 32 total minutes. And the guys are out there working and working. And if I call time out, I say, guys, this is what I want you to do. I need you to work harder. I, I, I need you to focus on your man and make sure that you keep your body between the basketball and the goal. Don't let him pass you. And I just say, work hard. And if one of the players said, so what are you telling me, coach, that, that we have to work hard to be on this team? No, you're already on the team. You're a member of the team. What I'm telling you is to work out the fact, the reality that you belong here. Okay, so... Church, when he says work out your salvation, take note, he's not saying work for your salvation. Work toward your salvation. Work in the hopes that God might grant it to you if you do a good enough job in your performance. No. He's saying work it out what you already have. Live out the realities of what God has already accomplished in you. Okay. All right. So that's the second word. The third word, which I believe is the most powerful word, is I embolden you. I embolden you. What, what, what does embolden mean? It means to make bold. If you look it up in the dictionary, it says to make bold or to make more bold. To, to give courage. To empower to strengthen. And so Paul is saying, I embolden you. I want to make you more bold than what you already are. And this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to tell you something about God. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. I want to, I want to give you some, some realities about God's relationship to you that should embolden you today. 
the first thing that I want to tell you is that God is living in you. Like, you remember when the Israelites were in bondage in Egypt and they cried out to the Lord for rescue? And God heard their cries. And He sent Moses. And Moses served as their deliverer. And they left Egypt. They crossed through the Red Sea as the Lord parted it. And they got over to the other side. And ultimately, God established the tabernacle. And inside that tabernacle was the Holy of Holies where the presence of God would be with the people of God. And then ultimately, He established the permanent tabernacle, the temple. And He gave very precise regulations as to what that temple should be. The parameters of it all, the look of it all, the feel of it all. And inside that tabernacle was the holy place. And inside the holy place was the holy of holies. And inside the holy of holies was the presence of God, where the ark of God was, where the high priest would only go in there once a year. But it was a symbol that God is with us. And then Jesus Christ comes... And He brings a new order of salvation. And bringing in a new order of salvation, He brings in a new presence of God where you now, believer, don't go to a tabernacle and you don't go to a temple, but you now are the temple of God. He resides in you. You see, God resides in those He redeems. So I don't care where you go today. It doesn't matter whether it's a convenience store or your home or you go to work out or you go to help your grandparents uh, in the town over. I don't care where you go. God is living in you. He is with you via the Holy Spirit. His Spirit resides in you. But not only is God living in you, He is working in you. I was telling Jamie about this last night when I got home. And I was, I was trying to encourage her and me at the same time that sometimes we cannot help but mess up what God is doing in our lives. I mean, we just trip over ourselves all the time. You know, it, it's, uh, we, we get defensive, we get prideful, we get stubborn, we get discouraged, we get depressed. We start comparing ourselves and our stations in life with other people and their stations in life and we start to get jealous and envious and all of these things and all of a sudden we look at our lives and we're like, what is going on here? I am messing things up. And yeah, yeah, a lot of times we do mess things up. But this is what Paul wants us to know. That while we're messing things up, God is in our lives, He is in our hearts, and He is working something beautiful, something magnificent, something glorious, even in the midst of us messing things up. He's at work! And He is working continuously. Like, I can say this, 
I'm not working out my salvation continuously in my own effort. I, I, sometimes I just, man, I just mess up and then I get into the wrong frame of mind and I just, I'm not, I'm not that faithful. I'm not that consistent. But the language that Paul uses, it is a present, active, indicative verb. That, that present tense right there. It means that he is continuously, he is always at work in your life. There's never a time that God's not working in your life. I don't care how discouraged, how struggling, how messed up you are, God's always working it, and He's going to bring it to ultimate salvation in your glorification. He's always working. Now that active voice that He's using is saying that He is powerfully working in you. He's not just saying, I'm going to try to do some things for you. I'm going to try to tweak this, or I'm going to try to tweak that. Maybe your life will run a little bit, letter, a little bit better after I care for this little part of your life this week. No, Paul is saying he is doing a complete work of renovation, a complete work of renewal in your life. Trust him for that. He is working continuously. He is working powerfully. He is working a work of great grace. And then he would say, he is delighting in you. Look back down at the text. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Church, I, I want to give you my interpretation of that, very, that phrase I just repeated. To will and to work for His good pleasure. You see, I believe that what God is doing is He is so at work in you that He is forming a will inside of you. He's forming a desire, a longing, a determination inside of you. In other words, He's producing a will in you and that will is ultimately to work, to labor, to toil, to press, and to strive for the glory of God. That's what He's doing. He's doing it in you. And it ultimately then will produce His pleasure. And so, this is what I want you to know, church. If you belong to Christ, if you've experienced salvation, if you've been justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then God is at work in you. And what is His work? His work is to form your will. His work is to form your will in such a way that you will labor, you will toil to bring glory to His name. And in bringing Him glory, you bring Him great delight. This is what I believe Paul would want. I believe Paul would want the believers that he writes to to lay their head down at night. And when they do so, they feel the pleasure of God. Amen. Why? Yeah. Because they know that He is at work in them to will and to work for His pleasure, for His goodwill. Glory. Hallelujah. You remember the great Olympian, is uh, it Eric... Little, yes. Mark, you and I were talking about him on Monday. And I have no idea if Eric said this in real life, but in the movie, Chariots of Fire, his sister 
is trying to talk him out of running in the Olympics so that he can go and serve as a missionary in Africa. And he's just saying, I think I want to I run in the Olympics one more time, and then I will go and do that. And she said, no, but brother, you need to go now. And Eric says to his sister, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. Church, this is the deal. I, I, don't know, I don't know what all your station in life is, what all your responsibilities are, what all your obligations are. But I believe that God wants that when we run, for us to run for His pleasure. When we feed a baby a bottle, that we feed a baby a bottle feeling the pleasure of God. When we care for a neighbor, we care for a neighbor feeling the pleasure of God. When we labor, we labor feeling the pleasure of God because we know that He is living in us, He is working in us, and He is producing a will and a desire to work for His ultimate pleasure and good purpose. So He says, I affirm you, I exhort you, I embolden you. Now, one thing that we didn't pay close attention to that I want to say now is notice how you are to work out your salvation. In what way? With fear and trembling. Is this the the fright and the terror that you might lose the salvation that God has accomplished in you? Is this this anxiety that comes and saying, oh, the Lord may take it away if I'm not good enough, if I'm not strong enough, if if I don't have enough faith or if I don't have enough hope? No. No, when you understand that your salvation includes God adopting you, God justifying you, God redeeming you, God sanctifying you, God ultimately glorifying you, and He does that all through the self-humiliation of His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We are set in this, this sense of awe and this sense of respect and this sense of admiration that He who has bestowed on us something so precious, so glorious, so amazing that we are to work out our salvation salvation with a sense of reverence, with a sense of awe, and with a sense of fear that we would ever grieve a God who has accomplished a salvation as great as this. If you would, close your eyes and bow your heads. I'd love for you to ask the question right now, Lord, how do you want me to work out my salvation this week? How do you want me to work out my salvation this week? Please ask the Lord that question right now with your eyes closed and your heads bowed in a spirit of prayer, independence on God. I want to help you right now to meditate on what it practically looks like for you to work out your salvation. Pray for God's help. Look to God's Word. Meditate on God's Son.
delight in God's will. Learn from God's people. Trust in God's process. Would you ask the Lord right now to help you look for His help? To meditate on His Son? To delight in His will? To learn from His people? To trust in His process? Would you ask the Lord to help you do that? Because God is not calling you to go out today and clench your fist and get white knuckles and say, I'm going to do this on my own. He's calling you to trust in Him because He lives in you. He works in you. And He delights in you. It occurred to me while we were singing that song, that there are four kinds of people in relation to salvation. There are those who don't have it and don't want it in Christ. I work with and try to influence those kinds of people every day. They are business leaders, coaches, students, who want to be saved. They want to be rescued. They want to experience deliverance from where they currently are. They just don't want it in Jesus Christ. And what I would have to say, if there's anybody here who doesn't have salvation and is not wanting it in Jesus Christ, you need to know that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if you're not trusting Him, you're going to do it. You will bow your knee and your tongue will confess that He is Lord. And then you'll go to hell. And you'll pay the price for rejecting the Savior. So I call you to repent today. The second kind of person is the kind of person who doesn't have salvation. Who doesn't have it. But would love to have it today. You would love to have the redemption and adoption and justification and sanctification and the ultimate glorification that we talked about today. You'd love to have it. And it just seems out of your grasp. I want to just tell you right now, it's not out of your grasp. You can have it right now. All you have to do is exchange everything that you are and everything that you have for everything that Christ is and everything that Christ has. You can give your life to Jesus Christ right now. And you can be saved. The third kind of person is a person who has salvation. But you're not reveling in it. You're not rejoicing in it. You're not working it out because you've let the cares of the world, the emptiness and deceitfulness of riches, 
the concerns about keeping up with the Joneses, the struggles of a difficult, hard life get in the way and it's choking whatever joy that God wants you to have out. I just want to call you today. Revel in the deliverance that God has accomplished on your behalf. Rejoice in your salvation. Man, say no to, to that, that, those cares that are creating anxiety. Say no to that greed that is creating selfishness. Say no to those fears that are creating, creating all kind of fright and dread about your parenting. Say no to all that and just say yes to Christ. He's better. He's fuller. Just revel in Christ. Listen, I, I just want you to know, and Jamie brought this to my attention, we, talk, we talked about it last night. When you make the decision to stop and pray, it is the Holy Spirit that is guiding you and convincing you that life is better and sweeter in conscious dependence on God. When you volunteer to help somebody move somebody's desk, or move from one house to another. It is the Holy Spirit that is compelling you. He's inside of you, causing you to revel in selfless love for others rather than selfish greed of yourself. And when you stay up an extra 30 minutes to read to your children when you don't feel like you've got another ounce of energy, it is God the Holy Spirit guiding you to love your children the way that God has loved you. When you go visit somebody in the hospital, it is God the Holy Spirit provoking you to go to people in their need the way that Christ has come to you in your need. And when you respond to somebody with patience, when they lash out at you in anger, it is God the Holy Spirit who is enabling you to exercise grace the way that He has exercised grace on you. You see, God the Holy Spirit pursues His agenda of restoring your heart and giving you the self-sacrificing love of Jesus. And that's what it means to be the fourth kind of person. It's a person who has salvation and works it out by trusting in the God who lives in you, who works in you, and delights in you. If you don't know salvation, if you haven't experienced it, I'm going to stand up front and you can come be saved today. If you're choking out the joys and the delights that God wants because you just have been sidetracked, I call you to come up front and just bow before the Lord and ask you to revel in the salvation that you have. If you have a spiritual need in this last song, I encourage you to respond that you might know the joy of salvation.